All right, we're going to look at two passages this morning from Genesis. We're going to take a break from our series through Exodus to focus on Advent, which just means the arrival, the arrival of our Lord Jesus Christ into the world. So please turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verse 15 there, and then we're going to flip over to Genesis 17 and read verses 15 and 16. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, is what God said to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Genesis chapter 17, verses 15 and 16. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. The grass withers, the flower fades the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, just as God prayed over the church in Ephesus, so Lord, please receive this prayer now. Lord, give us a spirit this morning of wisdom and revelation so that we would know your son, so that we would see with the eyes of our heart the hope to which we have been called. We pray it in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Genesis 3.15, of course, is the first and the oldest gospel proclamation. Uh, Theologians have said many a time that all of Scripture is a footnote to Genesis 3.15. It's an unpacking of Genesis 3.15. So boys and girls, children, if you want to know a one-sentence summary to the Bible, it's right here in Genesis 3.15 that God promised to send a son to crush the head of the dragon. And the rest of the scripture after Genesis 3.15 is either number one, and anticipating of this event, which is the Old Testament, or number two, a celebrating of this event, which is the New Testament. One of the ways that the Old Testament anticipates this event is by sending forerunners into the world, other spectacular sons who would foreshadow this one son and what he would accomplish. There are so many birth stories in the scripture. And what I want you to see at the end of this series is that every single one of them tells us something amazing and excellent about the Savior. So here's just a sampling. There's the promised birth of Isaac. Genesis seventeen sixteen. I will give you a son by her. I will bless her. She shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. 
We have the promised birth of Samson, Judges 13, 3 and 5. The angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son, and he shall begin to save Israel. The promised birth of Solomon, 2 Chronicles 22, 9. Behold, a son shall be born to you, who shall be a man of rest, and I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies. The promised birth of Josiah, 1 Kings 13, 2. O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a son shall be born to the house of David. Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you. And then there was the promised birth of John the Baptist, Luke 1, 13 through 16. But the angel said, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. He will be great before the Lord. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And all of these births, plus many more, point us and prepare us for the, the birth of the true and better son. Luke 1, 30 through 33, and the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now, this morning, we're going to look at the first spectacular son, Isaac, and then, God willing, over the next three weeks, we'll look at Moses, and then Solomon, and then on Christmas Eve morning, we'll look at Jesus. So here's our outline this morning. First, the spectacular birth of Isaac. Secondly, the spectacular biography of Isaac. And then third, the true and better Isaac. So let's turn back to Genesis 3.15. And what we're going to do is we're going to do a survey of Genesis through Isaac's life. But we need to know what is this promise in Genesis 3.15. God says this to the serpent who deceived the woman into eating the forbidden fruit. I will put enmity. Uh, That word means that uh, it means to be an enemy of. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So in this first prophecy in scripture, we learn two vital things. First, We learn that post-fall, humanity is involved in a perpetual war. What is humanity? It is perpetual warfare between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. You and I were born into war. Secondly, we learn how this war will end. This mysterious offspring of the woman will bruise or crush the serpent's head. It was the serpent that brought ruin into uh, the garden, um, and God promised to send a son who would crush his head and would reverse the curse. And it was this future spectacular son who would save the world. Now, we must note that between right here in the, the, the call of Abraham in Genesis 12, 
um, that humanity began looking for this son. This is what everybody was doing. In chapter 4, verse 1, Eve says, look, I've gotten a man from the help of the Lord, Genesis 4, 1. She thought her son Cain was the promised one. Lamech, the father of Noah, does the same thing in Genesis 7, or Genesis 5, 28 through 29. He says, maybe this one will bring relief from the curse. So so profound was this promise in Genesis 3.15 that it set the expectation for all of redemptive history. Meanwhile, the period between the fall and Abraham was filled with absolute corruption. It, It strikes me so odd today that people will say, man, back in the old days, it was so much better than what it is now. No, it's not. The world was so bad, so bad that God sent a flood and killed millions and millions of people. He didn't do that to, you know, Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. He did that to wicked, corrupt people. And then somehow the curse survived. God then confused the tongues at Babel and dispersed men all over the face of the earth, Genesis 11, and yet the curse survived. In fact, what we see between Genesis 3 and Genesis 11 is a five-fold curse. You can look these verses up later. Genesis 3.14, 3.17, 4.11, 5.29, and 9.25. God cursed the world five times. And then all of that changed when God called Abraham. Look with me at Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And then to answer the five-fold curse, he gives five blessings. Blessing number one, and I will make of you a great nation. Blessing number two, and I will bless you and make your name great. Blessing number three, so that you will be a blessing. Blessing number four, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And blessing number five, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That Hebrew word for blessed means to be made happy. It means to be brought back into the favor of God. It means to be made prosperous, to be, uh, to be made rejoicing. It means to laugh again. What's God doing here? He's promising to reverse the curse that happened in the garden through the offspring of Abraham. The five blessings answer the five curses. But there's a massive problem. Here in Genesis 12, Abraham is 75 years old. And he has no children, and his wife Sarai is barren. So God promised something to Abraham that was absolutely impossible. But it gets worse. Fast forward 10 years. Turn to Genesis 15. 
Abraham is now 85 years old, and since God had not given him a son yet, he assumes that Eleazar would be the heir of his home who would fulfill these promises. But God tells him otherwise. Look at chapter 15, verse 4. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Now, Sarai concluded from this, since she was barren, oh, this must mean that um, he'll have a child through my maidservant, Hagar. So she gave Hagar to Abraham, and he went into her and conceived. Look at chapter 16, uh, verses 15 and 16. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Okay, now all is well. Solution has been discovered. The promised child will be Ishmael. He would bring blessings to the nations, right? No. The New Testament tells us in Galatians 4 that Ishmael was a child of the flesh, not a child of the spirit. Fast forward another 14 years. Abraham is now 100 years old. Look at Genesis 17, 15, and 16. God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Now, you have to let the scripture be funny when it's funny. Because this is funny, and Abraham responds rightly. This was absolutely hilarious to Abraham. Look at verse 17. Then Abraham fell on his face. It's surprising here that he doesn't break a hip since he's 100 years old. He falls on his face. He laughs and he says to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Maybe what he was thinking too was like, I just, I don't think I can do a child at 100 years old. (laughs) I'm 45. I'm looking forward to grandchildren, but not staying with me. (laughs) To emphasize this point, look at Genesis 18, 11. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old. The Hebrew means old, ancient. Advanced in years, the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. That means she stopped ovulating. Her womb was dry. It was dead. It was beyond barren. It was in the grave. So Sarah, verse 12, laughed to herself, saying, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord Then said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard 
for the Lord. At the appointed time, I will return to you, and about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. And this is precisely what happened. Turn to Genesis 21. This is a year later. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his own age. And at the time of which God had spoken to him, Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And they named him Isaac because Isaac means laughter. It means he laughs. Look at verse 6. Sarah said, God has made laughter for me, and everyone who hears will laugh over me. Loved ones, there, there is so much gospel interwoven into Isaac's birth, and I, I hope you've already seen it. The birth of Isaac only came after a long time, decades, and so we read about Christ, that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. The birth of Isaac was entirely impossible since Sarah's womb was shut, and so it was impossible that Christ ever was born because of his mother. Luke 1, 34 and 35, Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel told her, but the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will conceive. But besides all of this, the part that I want to highlight to you is Isaac's name. It means laughter. And we need to look deeper than just the humor of God giving a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman a baby. This is significant redemptively. When Isaac was born, laughter was brought back into the world. Don't you, don't you, don't you love to laugh? It's, it's, Proverbs talks about how it's merry to the bones, it's merry to the heart, it's medicine to the spirit. I, I love laughing. When Isaac was born, laughter was brought back into the world. The five curses were overturned with these, were being overturned with these five blessings. The grand promise to Abraham was that his son would restore the world that was ruined by sin. Genesis 18, 18, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Genesis 22, 18, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. All the nations of the earth, the ones that were ruined by the fall, would somehow be made right again, would somehow be made happy again at the birth of this spectacular son. The sorrow of the world would turn back to joy. So when Isaac was born, his parents could look way out in the future and laugh. Behind them, pain and sorrow, but before them, joy and laughter. And that's what his birth would accomplish. Can't you, can't you, can't you clearly see that this is 
talking and pointing to Jesus Christ, who this laughter is all about. Jesus Christ is the great son of laughter. This is why we sing joy to the world. The very lyrics show that Jesus is the great curse reverser. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. Oh, loved ones, belonging to Jesus Christ means that all laughter, all blessing, all happiness belongs to us. That is our inheritance. Christians are the ones, the only ones on earth that can truly laugh. Those who are perishing, those who refuse to come to Jesus Christ cannot look at the future with any shred of hope. But as we look into eternal ages to come, we are not afraid. All hope is ours. All mercy is ours. Every covenant promise is ours. Fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore are ours. Life everlasting is ours. We can look into the future and laugh with hilarity because God gave us his spectacular son, Jesus Christ, the son of all laughter. Let's look then at the spectacular biography of Isaac. The mere fact of Isaac's birth doesn't solve the problem of human sin. Isaac's birth cannot undo what Adam did in the garden. And so the critical question is, is how will all the nations be blessed through Isaac if sin is not dealt with? People talk about the love of God today in some sort of sentimental, hallmarky way, as if the love of God means that he'll never punish evil. The love of God, the goodness of God, means that he must deal with evil. God cannot be good unless he destroys evil, and that's a big problem for you and I. Turn with me to Genesis 2. Genesis 22. Isaac is now a young man, somewhere in his teenage years, and God gives his father, Abraham, a test. Look at verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I should tell you. Now, the first thing we need to say is that this test was not for God's sake, as if God didn't know how Abraham was going to respond. This test was for Abraham's sake. This test was for our sake to show the world what must happen if Abraham's son is to save it. And oh, how difficult this test must have been. Of all the trials that we see in Scripture, even compared to Job's trials, these three days that Abraham pondered over this command must have been the difficult 
the most difficult trial. I mean, just think about what's happened up to this point. After 30 years of waiting for his son, after the trial of Sarah's barren womb, after his crying out to God again and again in prayer, after going into Hagar and begetting Ishmael and then that, having that son being rejected, after he finally obtained this promise, now God commands him, go and sacrifice your son. And the exceedingly difficulty of this test is emphasized with these words, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. God only gave Abraham one son of promise, and oh, how he loved him. This is the the first time in scripture that the word love is used, whether in Hebrew or in English. It's trotted out right here for the first time, to show the love between father and son. Jonathan Edwards says here of the difficulty of this test, quote, God doesn't merely call Abraham to see Isaac die. That would have been a great trial under such circumstances. But Abraham is to cut his throat with his own hands. And when he has done so, to burn his flesh on the altar. Children, boys and girls, think how awful that would have been to have your dad leave with your older brother. And when he comes back, the brother is not with him, but the blood is splattered on his coat. What would your mom say? How could could he ever look at your mom's eyes ever again. Why would God ever command this of Abraham? Why was his son specifically to be a burnt offering? The burnt offering here calls to our remembrance what Noah did when he got off the ark. Because the flood did not appease the wrath of God. Water does not wash away sin. Noah built an altar and he offered up these innocent animals, these bloody animals, and then he burned them on the altar. In Genesis 8.21, we read that the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. That means that God's wrath was appeased. One author says here, quote, the story of Noah's priestly act would have served to teach Israel the role of the burnt offering as given by God himself was for the procuring of divine favor. See, Abraham was commanded to offer his son as a burnt offering so that God's wrath towards sin would be satisfied. The only way the the nations on earth could be blessed is if sin is dealt with. Look at verse 6. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. He took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so they went, both of them, together. What a sight. Isaac bore on his back the very wood on which he would be killed. Verse 7, Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. 
And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both of them, so they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. One of the things that's shockingly missing here is that Isaac willingly allowed himself to be bound. He doesn't argue with his father. He doesn't fight. He doesn't resist. He is silent. He trusts his father. And now the moment arrives, verse 10. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. He has the very knife in the air. One downward stroke, one sidewards swipe, and it's all over. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. Seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. The angel of the Lord stopped him. Why did he stop him? You might say, well, because human sacrifice is evil in itself. And God doesn't command evil things. Well, that's a problem because God did command it. He tested him, but he did command it. That wouldn't be entirely right. It's true that God does forbid human sacrifice uh, to pagan gods in multiple places in the Old Testament, but mostly for the reason because those deities are not gods, but demons. 1 Corinthians 10.20 Human sacrifice cannot be condemned absolutely. Otherwise, God would have never commanded Abraham to do this thing. God doesn't tempt anyone to evil. He doesn't command evil things. Your hardest Voss says here, quote, it's not the sacrifice of human life that is denounced by the whole Old Testament. Rather, it's the sacrifice of average sinful life that is denounced. The reason the angel of the Lord stopped Abraham from sacrificing his son was because, number one, Abraham passed the test. End of verse 12. For now I know that you fear God, saying that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. But number two, the reason why the angel of the Lord stopped him is because Isaac was a sinner. He could never appease the wrath of God. Not for, not for him or not for anyone else. Psalm 49, 7 and 8 says, Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. Isaac was disqualified from being an offering. God could not accept him. No sinner 
can satisfy the infinite wrath of a holy God. So that brings us then to our third heading, which is the true and better Isaac. And of course, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you see it, don't you? This awful test was, wasn't about Isaac at all. This test was about the Lord Jesus Christ. Every painful detail in this story rehearses the, the cross. Isn't it shocking how, how often we forget what pain must have been involved in God sacrificing his son? I get it that, that God is impassable and, and that he, he is not given over to human passions. But in the mystery of God, this had to have been excruciatingly painful for the Godhead. I mean, think of it. As, as I'm talking about Abraham slashing the throat of his own son, how many of you are shifting uncomfortably in your seat and thinking about the horror and the, and the absolute tragedy of the situation? And yet that's exactly what God did for us in Christ. Consider, first of all, what Isaac and Christ shared in common. Consider what Isaac and Christ shared in common. First, Isaac was Abraham's son, his only son. Abraham, in fact, had other sons. Ishmael, we've seen. And he also had sons born to concubines, Genesis 25, 6. But those weren't sons of the promise. Likewise, God the Father has other sons, other sons like us who are adopted by the, by the Spirit, Romans 8, 15. But the Father has only one begotten Son. He only has one Son in whom the fullness of the deity dwells, in whom the exact imprint of His nature rests, Jesus Christ. We have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. The only son, full of grace and truth. Secondly, what Isaac and Christ had in common was that both their fathers loved their sons. God told Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. There's no doubt about it that certainly Abraham loved his son, Isaac, more than any other child on earth. It was a special love. God reserved this word for this occasion. And yet, this love that Abraham had for his son, it was a created love. It was a love that was constrained by time. It was a love that was tainted by sin. But the love which the father has for the son is uncreated. It's infinite. It's eternal. It's holy love. It's so hot with holiness that it would burn up the world if God unleashed it. John 335, the father loves the son and he's given all things into his hand. John 520, the father loves the son and shows him all the things that he is doing. Matthew 317, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. There's no greater love than the love that God the father has towards the son. Thirdly, what Isaac and Christ have in common is that they are both obedient sons. 
In this account, Isaac did everything that his father asked of him. He refused nothing. He bore the wood. He lay down. He had his hands bound. He waited for his father. And so it is with the Son of Man. He said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. John 4, 34. Jesus is the son who was obedient, even obedient to death. He didn't speak when he was going to the cross. He was like a lamb being brought to the slaughter, so he did not open his mouth. So much for these things that Isaac had in common. But consider how different Isaac and Christ were. First, Isaac was a mere man, but Christ is the God-man. Isaac was just a creature, but Jesus is, is both creature and creator united in one person. Isaac began, but the Son of Man never began. As the Nicene Creed says, he was begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God. He had immortality in himself. Loved ones, The one who came down 2,000 years ago was not a man. He was not a great dignitary. He was not a prince. He was God himself. God came into the world for us. The second difference between the story in Genesis 22 and Calvary is that Abraham was commanded to give Isaac, but the father was not commanded to give Jesus. Abraham was required to do what God told him. He was compelled to obey. He was constrained to give up his son. But God never had to give up his own son. Nothing compelled him. What motives did we give him to love us? Our hatred, our murder, our lying, our lust, our deceit, our backstabbing, our suspicion... Every law under the heavens we have thrown at him. And instead of responding with wrath and vengeance against us, he responds by giving us his son. When Abraham gave up Isaac, the angel of the Lord said to him, Now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. It proved that Abraham loved God. But what can we say? What happened on Calvary proves so much more that God loves us. As one author put it, how much more can we look at his sacrifice on the cross and say to God, now we know that you love us, for you did not withhold your son, your only son from us, whom you loved. The third difference between Isaac and Jesus is that Isaac was spared, but Jesus was not. At the very last moment when Abraham's knife was raised in the air, ready to kill his son, the angel of the Lord stopped him, and he provided a lamb in his place. Isaac was spared. A substitute was given. Loved ones, you see that a substitute was given for us. 
The great executioner of heaven had his hand raised with a knife and the fire prepared. But Christ, the great angel of the Lord, appeared and interceded. That's who this is. The angel of the Lord, the same one that showed up in the burning bush, the same one that showed up in the pillar of cloud and fire. This is Christ who prevents the death of Isaac. And dear congregation, for all who believe upon this angel, Lord, for Christ, he stays the executioner's hand. We are spared because Jesus laid down his life for us. Romans 8, 32, he did not spare his only son, but delivered him up for us all. Fourthly, in the last difference between Isaac and Jesus is that Isaac was a sinner, but Jesus was sinless. Isaac's sacrifice would have never sufficed. Don't you see that this is one of the reasons why hell is eternal? If any amount of afterlife in hell could satisfy the the wrath of God, say after a 1,000 years or 2,000 years or 3,000 years or, or 100 millennia, if that could satisfy the wrath of God, God would not make hell eternal. God is not unjust. He does not punish past the limits of righteousness. Hell is eternal precisely because the debt that we owe is an infinite price and no sinner can pay for it. The nations would not have been blessed by the death of Isaac. He was a spectacular son, but not because of his death. He was a spectacular son because he became the vehicle through which Jesus Christ would descend. Ultimately, it's Christ whom God promised to Abraham. Galatians 3.16 makes this clear. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Isaac could have burned a thousand times on that mountain, but not have paid for one single sin. His death could not save the world. But don't you see that the Lord Jesus Christ, he was burned on that cross of Calvary with the fiery wrath of God's just indignation. And at that moment, all of our sins were paid for. It is finished, he declared. That's why Jesus came into the world, because only a sinless human sacrifice could pay for our sins. It struck me this week as I was reading a conservative news site how people, everybody, everybody in the world is looking for a solution to sin. Might not say it like that. It might say, I'm looking for happiness, I'm looking for my identity. But everyone is looking for a solution to sin. But we're all looking for the solution to sin in in all the wrong places. Why do you think it's been said of our time that we live in clown world? On the one side, the political left 
is committed to social suicide in front of our faces, and they are trying to get us to drink the Kool-Aid at the same time. They're punching holes in the ship, and they want us to go down with them. But the political right is doing the same thing, only much slower. Loved ones, anything short of Jesus Christ is hell on earth. A headline from a very popular conservative website this week read this. Stupid, cowardly, happy talk isn't the answer. Well, I agree with that. But what is the answer? What's the answer to sin and evil in the world today? I mean, do we just need better policies? For the record, I'm for better policies. We desperately n- need them. But they can't solve the problem of sin. Do we just need better education? You know, there's a, a great exodus out of public schools and many people are taking up classical education. Is that the answer? Well, you know that it was the classically trained Romans that crucified Christians, right? Classical education just makes sinners better murderers. Well, maybe we just need more time to work this out. More time didn't cure the Canaanites. It just filled up their measure of sin, Genesis 15, 16. Loved ones know the only answer to clown world, the only answer to our sin, the only answer to the brokenness in our families and in our politics and in our own hearts is the true and better Isaac. Jesus Christ is the spectacular son not, who, who didn't come into the world to just merely save individuals, but to save the nations. All blessings are found in this son of laughter. All forgiveness is found in his blood. All peace is found in his death and resurrection. All hope is found in his righteousness. And that is precisely what Advent is about. For to us, a child is born. And to us, a son is given. Let's pray. Father, help us to see that it's not just the world that is broken, it's, it's us in this room. Help us to see that during this Advent season, that you have cured that brokenness with blood. That just as the chapters were ordainedly appointed in Genesis, that he was, Isaac was born in Genesis 21 and he was sent to the sacrifice in Genesis 22. So Lord, help us to see that you sent your son into the world with one purpose, 
to die. Help us to remember that during this Advent season, that you've given us an unspeakable gift. Lord, prevent us from turning this season into a pagan holiday. Prevent us, Lord, from commercialism and materialism and hedonism. But Lord, help us help this, this season to be a high, a high holiday. Help it to be a festival for the church all around the world that we would all together celebrate the arrival of the spectacular Son from heaven. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.